as we prepare again to hear God's word this evening, won't you join me in prayer? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, then that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and that indeed, O oh God, we are naked and exposed before you, who are our creator, our maker, and through Jesus, our redeemer. May your word be living and active in all of our lives tonight, for we pray these things in the Savior's name, amen. Before I read the passage in Mark's gospel that is listed in your bulletin, I'd like to read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 50. Tonight I'll be reading Isaiah 50 verses four through nine, and then we'll turn our attention to Mark chapter 10. Isaiah 50 beginning with the fourth verse. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then from Mark chapter 10 this evening, verses 32 through 34. Mark 10, beginning with verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Thus far the reading of God's word, may God add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word tonight. 
during my years in seminary, my wife and I had uh, a very unique living arrangement. Uh, in exchange for me serving as a groundskeeper and my wife providing some house cleaning, we had a wonderful apartment that was attached to a very large home that happened to be right there along the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. It was a beautiful view that we were able to wake up to each and every day looking out over the Atlantic Ocean. Well, you know how it is that sound carries over the ocean. And one morning we woke up and there was this, this incessant pounding that seemed to be coming from somewhere south of where we were living. Pounding, pounding, pounding. We weren't sure what it was. And every day it would renew again. It would go on throughout the course of the day, shutting off at night. Now, this was quite a number of years ago. We couldn't just uh, Google it and try to figure out what was going on. But eventually we came to find out that there was bridge work being done in a community a couple of towns south of us. And what we were hearing was a pile driver. And that, that pile driver was going uh, throughout the course of the day, pounding, pounding, pounding the pylons into the ground that would form the superstructure of that bridge. Every time the girders were struck, it was driven a little bit further into the ground so that it would be nice, firm, and secure there uh, for a foundation. Well, here as we turn our attention this evening to Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples about that which is soon to happen to him. This is actually the third such occurrence in Mark's gospel where Jesus has taken his disciples aside and spoken to them clearly and plainly about these events that are soon to happen. And what Jesus is doing as he does this these three times is a little bit like that pile driver seeking to drive these truths deeper and deeper into the minds and hearts of his disciples. Now, isn't it interesting that the Gospels record for us these three instances where Jesus brings his disciples aside and invests in them in this way. The Bible using the number three as the number of completeness. When anything is repeated three times, it speaks of that which is full and complete. And so it is here that Jesus is demonstrating the significance of these events that are soon to occur by repeating them three times for the sake of his disciples. Now, these chapters uh, in Mark's gospel really are quite remarkable insofar as they serve as a kind of tutorial for disciple making. And as we've been looking at Mark's gospel in the evening services in my congregation, we've seen in, in so many wonderful ways that Jesus really is investing himself in his disciples so that they might know how it is that they in turn would take up that mantle of proclaiming the good news and of bringing men and women and boys and girls to know the Savior's love. And so it is that Jesus here, in repeating this message these three times, is doing so really for your sake and for mine. He was impressing these things upon the disciples so that they in turn would be utterly clear as to the message that they were to proclaim when the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to empower them for gospel witness. 
Now, it's not only the message, incidentally, that Jesus is seeking to impress upon them, but also the method that is to accompany their message. And it's a very interesting thing. If you were to go back and to look at the three occurrences where Jesus talks about what is soon to happen in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, in each instance, immediately afterwards, the disciples uh, demonstrate the fact that they really haven't grasped all of the implications of what Christ is speaking to them. Uh, In the first instance, Jesus speaks of his coming death, and you may remember that the apostle Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke, rebuke Jesus, saying, that will surely not happen, Lord. And Jesus, in turn, has to tell him, if anyone would follow after him, he must take up his cross and follow after him. In the second instance where Jesus speaks about what is soon to happen to him, his sacrifice for the sake of sinners, uh, the disciples are having a conversation along the road. And Jesus says to them, what were you talking about when we were making our way along the road? And they're a little bit embarrassed because they had been arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about giving up his life and the disciples are worried about who is greatest. And so Jesus, in that instance, pulls a little child into the midst of them and uses that child as an object lesson, reminding the disciples that true gospel disciple-making is such that if they would be great, they must become the servants of all, including those who are like that little child. Well, here in this third instance, Jesus again speaks of the impending nature of his suffering and death at the hands of evildoers. And right afterwards, once again, there's an incident that demonstrates that the disciples really haven't understood what Jesus is saying and the implications of it. For you may remember that James and John, Matthew tells us, accompanied by their mother, actually go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what is it that you want me to do for you? He's not willing to just give them this kind of benefit of the doubt. And they say, well, when you come into your kingdom, uh, give to one of us the place at your right hand and the other the place at your left. Once again, Jesus talks here about his sacrifice and they're worried about their own place and prominence. And so throughout this series of instances where Jesus speaks of his of his coming suffering. It is to impress upon the disciples the nature of the message, but also the nature of the method that those who serve him are to follow. That message and that method are always to go hand in hand. Well, it's really quite interesting to recognize that indeed this threefold repetition is not merely repetition, but in each instance, there is a different emphasis that is before us in terms of Christ speaking about what is soon to come to pass. In Mark chapter eight and verse 31, we read there that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. The first time that Jesus speaks about his suffering, it's in terms of its necessity, that which must happen. Now it must happen on one hand because it is foretold in the Old Testament and God's word is never to be broken. But ultimately the necessity about which Jesus is speaking in that first instance has to do with this being the only way that sinners are able to be reconciled 
to a just and holy God. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer, that he give his life as a ransom for many, that he be the substitute, that he be the one who would suffer vicariously what you and I deserve on account of our sin. There's a necessity there. There is no other way. There is no other way that God's love and justice would both be satisfied except through the offering of an innocent sacrifice in place of the guilty. And we rejoice over the necessity of Christ's suffering. It reminds us and teaches us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But the second instance when Jesus talks about that which is soon to pass is not about the necessity of it. Uh, rather, in chapter nine in verse 30, we read they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Here it's not necessity, Rather, it's certainty. These things will certainly come to pass. And once again, we might understand this in terms of the truth of God's word, the way in which God's word in the Old Testament foretold the sacrifice and the suffering of the servant of the Lord. That gives us certainty that these things will come to pass, but ultimately when Jesus is speaking here about certainty, he's speaking of his own will to embrace in obedience God's plan and purpose for him. He is able to guarantee that this will happen because he knows in the end he will in fact take the cup of God's wrath and drink it to its final dregs. That even as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, ultimately he is willing to submit his will to his Father's will. It is not his will but the Father's will that he desires to be done. And so Jesus there proclaims the certainty of the things that he foretells. But here in chapter 10, it's not so much about necessity or even certainty, but rather about the imminency of these things. And you notice in verse 33 and verse 34 that there are no fewer than seven details that are given to us by Christ in terms of the things that are very soon to come to pass. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And it is the detailed nature of this particular account that helps us to understand how imminent these events truly are. I, I was sharing uh, at lunch with a number of the folks how it is that uh, last year my, my brother fulfilled a kind of dream that he has, my youngest brother, and he purchased uh, a substantial fishing boat that is docked along the southern shore of Lake Ontario. In the last couple of summers, my youngest son and I have been able to go out with him fishing on Lake Ontario. Now, if you've ever been on a big body of water out uh, on a boat, you recognize that distance is different uh, gauging it than it is here on land. 
And at the end of the day, when we began to make our way back towards shore, uh, the waves are kind of coming against you and the currents are running and it's hard to understand how, how quickly you're moving. How do you know that you're making progress? It's by looking at the shoreline and things that at first are very distant and hazy begin to come into focus and you begin to see them in increasing detail as you get closer and closer. And these seven details in terms of what Christ would suffer that he gives us here, give us that detail that we're getting closer and closer to the cross. The necessity of the cross, the certainty of the cross, and now the imminency of the cross. Now you notice here at the beginning of this section that we're told in verse 32, they're on the road, they're going up to Jerusalem. And perhaps you're aware that, that people always went up to Jerusalem, right? No matter where they were uh, heading uh, from, they were always going up to Jerusalem, not only because of the topography, Jerusalem being on a mountain, but also because of its prominence spiritually, you always went up to Jerusalem. But we find here that Jesus was walking ahead of them. And Mark makes a point of this because this was not customary. Normally you have this sense that Jesus is surrounded by the crowd, that Jesus is in the midst of the crowd, that people are kind of thronging around him. And, and Mark actually gives us a lot of details in terms of the crowd and sometimes Jesus having to, 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 to speak from, from off the shore in a little boat because the crowd is pressing in on him, other occasions where they touch him. And, but here Jesus is out ahead. He's, he's leading the pack, as it were. And we find in verse 32 as well, they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And we have the sense here of how Jesus is so clearly, evidently resolved in what he is doing. Uh, we don't know exactly why it is that those who followed him were surprised and amazed and even fearful. Maybe there was something about Christ's bearing, his, his, his facial determination, it was etched upon him. Maybe the pace of his stride quickened, maybe the length of his stride lengthened. But we have this sense of Jesus showing such evident resolve in making his way to Jerusalem. And his followers were frightened by this. They knew what awaited him there. They knew that it was in Jerusalem where the antagonism against him was concentrated on the part of the religious leaders of the day. But even as Jesus shows this evident resolve, we notice as well his unyielding intention to go his unyielding intention to make his way to Jerusalem. He says there in 30, verse 33, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And he expresses his unyielding intention. No matter what, no matter what awaits him, no matter what it is that would lie before him, he makes his way to Jerusalem. Now I want you tonight to think about this and to love your Savior all the more as you recognize the willingness of Jesus to endure suffering and even death itself for your sake. To think about Jesus here who is making his way to Jerusalem with resolution and intent and he will not let anything 
uh, waylay him. He will not let anything hinder him. He will go, even though he understands that what awaits him is suffering and shame and pain and death. We think of how it is that Jesus says in John's gospel that he who is the good shepherd has authority to lay down his life and take it up again. And in one of those statements that absolutely takes our breath away, Jesus says, this is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and take it up again. Jesus, you see, does not have his life taken from him. He gives his life willingly, the sacrifice that is required to take away our sin and to guarantee our life with God eternally. We think of it is of how it is that in John's gospel there's this added detail as well that when Jesus dies, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished, the work of redemption accomplished. And then John tells us, he gave up his spirit. Even that speaks, as it were, of how Jesus is relinquishing as a voluntary act his spirit. It's not even the case that the nails of the cross and the torment of crucifixion itself took his life away. He gives it up willingly, and he does that for you and for me. Oh, those who are surrounding Jesus were fearful and amazed. May we be filled tonight and always with love and adoration, the willingness of our Savior to do this for us, and he will let nothing hinder him from his mission to rescue and redeem the lost, even through his own suffering and death. Jesus here speaks of this fitting destination. He he says we are going up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is exactly the right place for Jesus to be going. Throughout scripture, Jerusalem is so enigmatic. In some ways, it's that, it's that location where God has, had called his name to dwell in the midst of his people, where divine worship was offered up according to the sacrifices of the law. It was a place, even as we saw this morning from Psalm 46, that represented the way in which God would provide for and protect his people. It is even a kind of type and symbol of of eternity to come when God will dwell with man in the new Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, Jerusalem was also that place even as Jesus himself would lament over it, declaring that prophets were sent to it, but they stoned them all and killed the ones who were to preach God's message to them. And so Jerusalem represents as well the very low point of human sin. They were given so much, so many privileges, so many opportunities, but they squandered them all. We don't look at Jerusalem in that sense and judge it, but rather we see it ourselves as if in a mirror because Jerusalem in that regard is a demonstration of the hardness of the heart of humanity, that they would even have God in the flesh in their midst and rather than welcoming him, they would call for his death and hand him over to those who would destroy him. And so it is, that is the condition of the human heart apart 
from the regenerating, recreating work of God to enable us to receive Christ and all of his benefits. But Jesus is going to this most fitting destination. And as he is making his way to Jerusalem, we notice here as well the detailed description. Now I've mentioned this already. These seven details that Jesus gives in terms of describing what will soon take place. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And it's really quite remarkable how it is that that Mark will make sure that we see that each of these these predictions that Jesus makes, these foretellings of what will soon come to pass, they happen exactly as Jesus has said that they would. So for example, he says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. In Mark chapter 14, verse 43, we read that while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes. So that takes place exactly as Jesus has said. They will condemn him to death. We find this in chapter 14 as well, verse 64. They all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus says they will deliver the Son of Man over to the Gentiles. Chapter 15, verse one, we read, they delivered him over to Pilate. Jesus said they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. In chapter 15, verse 19, we read, they spit on him. Chapter 15, verse 20, they mocked him. Chapter 15, verse 15, they scourged him. They mocked him, spit him, spit upon him, and they killed him. Now Mark goes to great lengths to show that these things that Jesus has described will happen exactly as he has said. And this serves a number of purposes. Isn't it on one hand a reminder to us that this one who willingly suffers for us is none other than Almighty God, the God who knows all things in the person of his Son. This is omniscience on display. This is a knowledge that knows no shadows. This is a demonstration of Christ being aware of all that will come to pass, and this in this stunning degree of detail. He is, after all, the Son of Man. He is the exalted one of Daniel chapter seven who enters the presence of the Ancient of Days and who is given a kingdom that will never end a kingdom that will never pass away. This one who suffers, we must never forget, is God incarnate, the word made flesh who dwells among us. But it also serves to validate and confirm all that Jesus says, for it demonstrates that he is one who speaks truly. He is one whose word is never broken. And that becomes so important because we find here that Jesus concludes in each case the declaration of what will soon come to pass by saying, after three days, he will rise. And Jesus here, who has spoken with such clarity about these things that absolutely come to pass exactly as he has said, now concludes by saying, after three days, he will rise. 
And we find in Mark's gospel and in the gospels as a whole this glorious truth that the suffering of Jesus and the death of Jesus is not the end of Jesus. For after three days he did rise from the grave and was confirmed with power to be the Son of God. And he in fact took up his life again and he is a living Savior and he is a glorious Lord. And by his conquest over sin and death for you and for me, he guarantees an eternal place with God, a place of joy and delight pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. What was the price that Jesus paid? Think about all of the categories of what Jesus endured here. He was condemned to death, delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed. There is pain that he endured. There is shame that he faced, and all of these things externally are but a reflection and a shadow of what he experienced in his own soul as the wrath of God was poured out upon him in our stead on Calvary's cross. That's what Jesus endured. That's what Jesus willingly embraced so that rather than knowing God's eternal condemnation, we might with him enjoy forevermore life everlasting. Jesus here is declaring to his disciples that he is getting nearer and nearer to the cross. And as Jesus draws our attention to his cross and his resurrection, may we rejoice tonight and always that this is what the Savior has done for us, he has purchased our salvation. He has delivered us from this present evil age. The Savior loves you and has given himself for you. All praise and honor be to him. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the willingness of Christ to suffer in our place on Calvary's cross. Father, perhaps in some ways our hearts have grown cold and calloused to the reality of our sin. But as one of our previous hymns has reminded us, the way we rightly estimate the guilt of sin is by looking at Christ's cross. Oh, that such a one would have to suffer such a fate in order to redeem us from sin. This gives us the proper way of understanding what our sin deserves, of how it truly is an abomination in your sight that we who are your creatures would rebel against you. But Father, even as our hearts are newly aware and renewed in our acknowledgement of sin, we thank you that there is a remedy that has been given. Even Jesus, our Savior, who suffered in our place, who was the substitute we needed, so that through his blood and righteousness, we are blameless and acceptable in your sight. Father, we pray tonight that you would give us by your spirit that abiding faith in Christ to know that he indeed is the savior that we need. That even in those moments where we are so profoundly disappointed in ourselves, 
we stumble into sin time upon time, that we would know that in Christ Jesus, though our sin is as scarlet, we have been made white as snow. Father, comfort us, console us, strengthen us in these truths, and help us thereby to live in a manner that is consistent with this good news that we have received. Unlike the disciples who in many ways were proud and and arrogant initially, even having heard the good news from the Savior's lips, we pray that we would be humble, that we would measure greatness by a willingness to serve, and that we would be those, O God, who delight to be servants of Christ, representing a crucified and resurrected Savior to a lost and dying world. Father, thank you again for this gospel message. May it stir our souls tonight, even as we close out this Lord's Day in worship to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.